welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey guys, today we're exploring the first African-American woman to get a PhD in chemistry, and also, who was the undesirable alien? That's really sad. I mean, I don't know about sad. It's, it's just like... It's sad as in it's not like the fun type of alien. No, it's, I just wanted to hug her. I desire you. I love you. Well, you you can't. She's dead. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Spoiler alert. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this week's artist is dead. Oh, she died. That's so sad. But she, though, actually got recognition during her lifetime. Oh, that's nice. Before she died. Yeah. So kudos to her. That's cool. So did, so yeah, did she. Yeah, so that's a little bit uplifting. Good stuff. We're doing good We're doing this week. good. <laughs> All right. Um. Uh, yeah, no, so who I'm going to talk about, um, she really kind of came of age during, like, the mid to late, like, 20th century. What What about your woman? Uh, yeah, she passed away 2003. Okay, yeah, yeah no, uh, Elizabeth, she passed away in 2012. Oh, there you go. Okay. All, All right. right. We're moving forward, guys. There you go. Progression. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, the further you get away from, like, the 19th century... <laughs> Shocker. Shocker. The less tuberculosis <laughs> is involved in these stories and uh, the more recognition of women's contributions <laughs> to the arts and sciences. <laughs> All right. Good oh, stuff. I like man. it. So that's why we're doing this. My dad asked me yesterday for a link. Yeah. <laughs> the dread in your voice. How, how did that? Did he listen? I haven't yet sent it because I am very concerned and I love him and I know he loves me, but I don't imagine he's going to get very far. I told him episode three came out because he was like, yeah, when, like, what's, what's going on with that podcast you were talking about? And I was like, it came out. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> I don't know. It's just like because I, I didn't. I don't know. Like I don't know how I'm gonna feel when he listens to it. Yeah. No. It. It was very like a yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm that liberal daughter of yours. I love you so much. <laughs> At least you're not a commie. Because I'm gonna talk about those today. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah. No. He's hopefully right. commie bastards. Hopefully, dad, if you're listening. Thank you for getting this far. Welcome to episode four. Welcome to episode four. I want to hug you. <laughs> and we're going to keep going. <laughs> yeah. All right. So today I am doing uh, artist Elizabeth Catlett. Are you familiar with her at all? I am not. That's okay. I wasn't either. So last episode I covered Mita Vox Wark Fuller, kind of early... 1900s sculptor. I've been really feeling some some sculpting, so I was trying to find some really kick-ass African-American women sculptors, and she popped up. So that's who we're going to be learning about today. Yay. So she was born in 1950 in D.C. Um, her father was a professor. Unfortunately, he passed away before she was born. Her mother worked for a local school and the administration. She was the youngest of three children, and Kind of funny to know, like someone you're about to do for next episode, mm-hmm. there is no mention of her siblings, like, at all. Still? Yeah, and 
like all the readings I looked at and all the different sources, no one mentioned her other two siblings. Maybe they were like my sibling, you know? He doesn't want anybody to know his name or know that he exists. He's very private. I don't know. Like, I don't even know if she was the youngest and, like, she had two sisters or she had two brothers or, like, the age difference between them. I have no idea. Maybe they weren't common. So they're just, I, well, we're not there yet. Hold your horsies. Horsies? That's right, horsies. Yeah, so unlike Amita from last episode, where I found a lot of great information about where she grew up and how her old house is now a gay sports bar <laughs> in Philly, um, <laughs> I, I really I didn't have a lot of info on, on Elizabeth okay. kind of in her early days. Um, so we do know that she was a granddaughter of slaves. She was middle class. Living in D.C., she pretty much existed within a segregated bubble. It's not often they were out in the majority white areas of the city and from her grandma she grew up hearing about stories of slavery so it really instilled in her this like determination later on uh, in art to represent black women could you could you imagine like grandma like sitting you down as a seven-year-old like an eight-year-old and just like going through that sort of thing and being that young and listening to these stories like Okay, so here's a plug. We are not sponsored by StoryWorth, but you guys should check it out because I got it for my grandma. Did I tell you what, about it? What is it? All for Christmas? No, what is it? Okay, so StoryWorth, it's pretty awesome. Um, you can sign up and for, I think they were doing a special about Christmas time, so it was like 50 bucks. Um, every week, you can select a question to send to a loved one. And they've got a whole slew of like, drop down questions or you can write your own and then the person they send it to you know like will reply they can email it back you can choose to like read it if you want or not and then after a year they take all these questions and they put it in a book so it's really neat because you can actually learn things about like those family members that you know you don't necessarily think to ask and usually it's not until after the fact you're like oh shoot it would have been great to learn about their childhood because that's usually a totally different you know you know period they grew up in you know i don't know enough about my mom like her childhood great gift i could probably send you a promo huh yeah like what was it like a little girl you know when she was growing up in columbia she wasn't growing up in columbia that was my other parent well she was born in columbia yeah but she was raised in illinois Okay, see, I didn't know that. When did they... Okay, well, we can dish out your family history a little later, because obviously I didn't realize when she moved over. Um, also, big jump from Columbia to Illinois. I know. I, I was very confused when she told me that the first time. Yeah. Okay, sure. Why not, like... She grew up with, like, like snow. Florida, it's sunny there. Like, snow up to her second floor window. So her snow, like, when, she, when it snows where she's at, she, like, laughs when we're all like, nope, I'm not going out. She's like... Okay, guys. School's closed. It might snow. <laughs> it might snow. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right. Tell me more. So growing up, she was always a creative kid. You know, she finished up high school, wanted to go to college for art, and initially she got accepted into the Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh on scholarship. But they were kind of shits because when they found out that she was a black woman, they are like, psych, LOL, no scholarship for you. 
And today, Carnegie Mellon, it's it's one of the top rated universities in the United States. Right. So it was pretty badass for her to get in then and, you know, shady that they didn't accept her. Instead, she went to Howard University, which you talked about a little bit last Very episode. Cool. Um, historically black college in D.C. Mm-hmm. And from its founding in 1867, it's always been open to all people, regardless of race or sex. Bet Carnegie's feeling a little shitty right now. <sighs> Yeah, I don't even know what to say to that because just think of all the people they, these colleges and universities like denied access yeah. to. So she graduated in 1935. She was cum laude. A certain person you talked about last episode, Mammy Phipps Clark, she graduated a few years later, magnum cum laude in 38. Yep. So technically, her freshman year and Elizabeth's senior year. They could have been in school together. <gasps> they could have known each other. They could have. I mean, they wouldn't. I mean, they might have taken like their uh, yeah. their prereqs together. It, or no, because no, because senior and junior, they wouldn't. No, because she was, Elizabeth was a senior while Mammy was a freshman. Damn. Okay. So maybe they know each other through like friend circles because they wouldn't have come across Most, the same classes. No, no. And so Elizabeth was in the art department where your mammy, she was in psychology, right? right? Well, no, 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 yeah. no, no. Her, her first degree was in, like, mathematics. Yeah, yeah, that's right, before she got her master's. Right. Um, so, I mean, small world. That's exciting. It is. I mean, small world because of small opportunities because of racism. But, hey, hey. there's that. Um, both graduated top of their class. Howard, we love you. So she... Elizabeth studied under some really influential artists of the day. And I didn't realize their names all, the first names are all James. A little confusing. Uh, So there was James Herring. He was a black art historian who introduced her to modernism. He founded the art department at Howard. James Wells, a Harlem Renaissance graphic designer. And then the most important James of them all. James Porter. He was the author of Modern Negro Art, and that was the first comprehensive study of African-American art, and he's credited with instilling in her the discipline needed to be an artist. Yeah. Kind of showing her how, how to, you know, how to, to make keep it work. going, how to, like, block everything, like, your schedule and your timeline, and yeah. yeah, you know, like, being like, okay, you want to be an artist, like, this is how this we is do, how it. do it. Yeah. So, I said she was born 1915, year before World One kicked off. Then in 1918, we've got the Spanish flu. Killed up to 10 million people. <laughs> no big no deal. deal. Which is a shit ton of people, but like proportionally only 5% of the world population at that time. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, you're like, oh, 5%. That's not bad. 10 million people dead. Wash your hands, kids. Get vaccinated. All that good shit. Uh, vaccinations do come up later in this. Um, it always goes back to prevention. <laughs> yeah, but not to, not tuberculosis this no. episode. Not on my part. Perfect. So we got the Roaring Twenties, right? Vast mechanization, petroleum use increases because of all these cars and tanks and airplanes. Elizabeth was coming of age in the 1930s. Yeah, kind of got the Great Depression going on. Yeah. So that was a little shitty. I had a dream last night that our country. Where is this going? Was in a yeah. state of emergency. Milana, that is not funny. We are. <laughs> I will have you know that not the year anniversary of a mass shooting, guess what? 
another mass shooting, state of emergency. But hey, who needs gun control in this country? That's not an issue. We just need a fucking wall. Them darn brown people trying to come over and seek asylum. Ugh, gotta stop it. Unreal. Yeah. I think we're off track a little. Right, yeah, a little bit. All right, so Elizabeth came of age in the 1930s, and we've got the Great Depression, you know, in full swing at this point. Um, now, post-World War One, we've got some shifting geographic political identities, and essentially by that, I, I mean communism. Communism. <laughs> communism. Just just really casual. It's whatever. Yeah, uh, reds. And... In the U.S., during the early 20th century, when they were first founded, the Communist Party in the United States of America, they were active in founding industrial labor unions, opposing racism, Jim Crow laws, segregation. So right there, there's a whole pocket of people, I imagine, who could get behind that. Mm-hmm. Now, with the Great Depression, there was this really big disillusionment with capitalism. And so it wasn't uncommon for creative types to be involved either with the party or communist activities or organizations. So we've got a lot of performers and writers and artists and intellectuals, and I promise that's going to be a little relevant later on. So with the Great Depression, uh, we've got Roosevelt creating the New Deal, a series of programs aimed to help recovery. And that's an assortment of financial reforms, new regulations, but specific to us is the Public Work Project, of which the Public Works of Art Project uh, becomes really important. So that was created to provide patronage for unemployed artists and to push American nationalism. Uh, so think posters for the national parks. Oh. There's really great, kind of, like, vintage ones. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have images of these on the show notes. Um, posters for vaccinations. Hey. Telling people... N- Yeah, not to kiss babies. You'll give them smallpox. (laughs) And also, like, yeah, you might have syphilis, but you should tell people because you don't want to give it to others. (laughs) I found lots of syphilis posters. I mean, yeah, because, like, syphilis is, like, now it's just syphilis, right? But, like, back then it was a cause of a lot of deaths. Yeah, I mean, she got ugly with it. Yeah, you'd, you'd lose your nose. So... With things like that, I mean, those are artists who were employed to make those posters, and there was lots of other stuff they did, too. Um, And also, when World War II kicked off, kind of the most well-known one is loose lips sink ships. Mm -hmm. Murals were also a really large part of the creative output of the WPA, and that's because a friend of Roosevelt, a painter, George Biddle, he went down to Mexico in 1928, saw what they were doing, came back to the States, and was like, yo, we should totally do the same thing. Let's create a public program where we can get these unemployed artists uh, to do public work for us. And, you know, kind of help with public morale and push nationalism and all that good stuff. Uh, and Roosevelt was like, yeah, all right, shit, let's do it. So they did. And that was the the PWAP. That only lasted for about six months. And most of the artists employed were pretty much European descent, so white. Mm. But out of that grew the Federal Art Project in 1935. That ran for eight years. That was really important because they opened it up to a lot more artists. So it wasn't just white men creating work. And from that, we there's like photography was one of the departments. So think the migrant mother. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
that came from this public right. initiative. You know, there the posters, of course, murals. They were influential in motion pictures. One thing that was really important from it, so the money and resources, they helped fund community art centers like the Harlem Community Art Center, Chicago Southside Community Art Center, really opened up resources for communities and minorities in a period of really heavy segregation and disadvantage. And one unintended thing that happened while we've got these centers opening up in largely African-American neighborhoods uh, is that people are learning about the Mexican artists that inspired the program. And those artists down in Mexico, they were working post Mexican Revolution. That happened about like 1910 to 1920. Right. And the theme of what they were doing was really appealing because they were using public art as a means to lift up typically uneducated, illiterate people by depicting the revolutionary past. And for African Americans, that became a really potent idea. I'm like, hey, people may be downtrodden now, but look in the past, look what they're capable of, and think about what we're capable of in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Move forward. And that becomes. Yeah, I'm looking about, even though things might be shit now, think of all these great, amazing things that people have done. No reason why I can't do that in the future. Right. So that becomes really important because Elizabeth becomes exposed to that in Howard, at Howard University. She was assigned to do a, a mural for the Public Works of Art Project by James Porter, that really important professor of hers. And that's when she learns about these Mexican mural painters. She was really attracted so she said, quote, the social commitment, direct engagement with the experiences of ordinary people and the deliberately accessible style and choice of medium. And that really set the tone for her work, like for the next seven decades. 70 years. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh, she she lived to her mid 90s. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she was. I was just doing the math. Yeah, know. she graduated <laughs> in 1935 and she was she was 20 years old. When she graduated? Yeah. Oh, cool. So she had a long, good life. Yeah, so that really set the tone for like seven decades of her work. After graduating, she kind of mucked about. She was a high school teacher for about two years down in North Carolina. And then decided, you know what, shit, I want to go back to school. I'm going to get my MFA. So that takes her to the University of Iowa. A little different. Fucking Iowa. From the East Coast. Well, she went because of this guy, Grant Wood. She really loved his work. Uh, he's most well known for painting American Gothic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's where you know him. So she wanted to work under him. She thought she was going to go for painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he became really important in developing what she wanted to say as an artist, just like James Porter was important in developing the discipline of being an artist. Right. Under Grant Wood... He suggested that she focus on subjects that she was really intimately familiar with, uh, which for her became African-American and later Mexican women's experiences. And with his help, she became the first person to earn an MFA in sculpture from the university. Nice. Yeah, like we had to go and be like, I'll do painting. And be like, oh, never mind. I'll do sculpture. Yeah, those are two very different things. Oh, no one's actually earned an MFA? Eh, I got this. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. How do you, those are two totally different mediums, like two totally different, like. Uh, they're different. Yeah. yeah. I also do painting and I do sculpture and, you know, they're, they're two different bubbles, right. but there's lots of, you know, underlying themes and I mean, the technique's different, but, you know. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. The technique is different. 
Yeah, but I mean, overall, it's the same elements of, like, discipline and craftsmanship mm-hmm. and, you know, how you approach a theme or a body of work. Mm-hmm. Just a, you know, a different way of expressing it. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's like dance. Like, there's a big difference between traditional ballet and jazz. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, you need the same principles and able to execute, you know, either one. So she gets her MFA from the University of Iowa. Uh, work she did for her senior thesis wins first prize at the 1940 American Negro Exposition in Chicago. Very cool. And last episode, yeah, we touched about, we touched on the importance of expos in the late 1800s, early 19th century. And that was a really great way for you know, people to showcase what they were able to do creatively with industry, kind of like a who's who of who's doing what, both nationally and internationally. So after she gets her MFA, she goes down to New Orleans to teach at Dillard University. And that was a WPA funded black college. And her most significant thing she did there was take her students to a Picasso art exhibit. Hmm. Yeah, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's the art teacher. Right. She's taking her art students to the art museum right. to see an art show of Picasso. It was for whites only. Hmm. Seriously? Yeah, and yeah, no, seriously. And just to walk most in of her students and look at a painting or look at a, a bunch of paintings. Yep, whites only. Mm. Most of her students had never been to an art museum because of that. That's so shitty. And she was like. Yeah, she was like, fuck that. We're going to the art museum. So she was able to arrange for her students to go on a day when the museum was typically closed to the public. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I'm so... keep in mind at this point. Okay, so this museum was like, no, you can't come in when we're already open. But we're going to open it up. We're going to bring workers in again on a day we're not really open. Spend money to be open. So I don't know the details of the incident, but I imagine it's not like they completely opened the museum up and running for her group of students. I feel like someone agreed to come in on their day off, turn on the lights, walk them through, and then lock up afterwards. That's fair. I have a feeling it was something more like that. I mean, ultimately, they got to see it, yeah. which was important. Yeah. But, I, again, during this time, we got the whole separate but equal thing going on. Mm. Some good old-fashioned American racism. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so it's on summer break. She takes break from being down New Orleans and goes up to Chicago. And she stays with a Margaret Taylor, who was co-founder of the Southside Community Center. Okay. At this point, Chicago's undergoing a renaissance in the literary and visual arts, like specific to African Americans, and being there immersed Elizabeth in this like creative and intellectual hub. She also studied ceramics at the Art Institute of Chicago, and you know she goes to the Southside Community Center. I will note any chance I get to mention ceramics, someone practicing ceramics, exhibiting ceramics, I'm going to mention. <laughs> Because I went to school for ceramics. You guys should see her face so right now. So in this episode and every episode, I'm mentioning the ceramics. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, she does work in ceramics. 
Wait, 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 what? In terracotta. She does some of her work in terracotta. (laughs) And stoneware. I'm not going to get into specifics for this. I can. I won't. Um, Yeah, so there she is. She's hanging out at the Southside Community Yard Center. And she's meeting all these, like, cool cats, including Charles White, who later becomes her first husband. First husband. Let's get it on. (laughs) And as I mentioned, it was, you know, commonplace with artists and intellectuals and writers of the time. Charles that she met, the co-founder of the community center, Margaret, um, they were communist. Oh, you know. That's what you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, we got this communist party that was like, fuck racism, fuck segregation. So it's no surprise that a lot of people were like, yeah, I can get behind that. Now, she gets married to Charles. A year later, in 1941, she's 26, and they move to New York City, to Harlem. Now, with the stock market crash of 1929, that brought on the Great Depression, and that kind of killed the whole Harlem Renaissance going on in that neighborhood. So she studied at the Student Art League in New York City for for printmaking, and that's been running for quite a while. Um, And there's been some really big well-known artist to go through that school. It's like an informal, non-degree granting art school. Well, not informal. It's a non-degree granting art school that a shit ton of really well-known artists have, have attended. Like Ah Weiwei. I'm sorry, who? Excuse me? Oh, Jesus. Okay. Bless you. He's a really prominent contemporary Chinese artist. Milana, come on. Look, there's only so much art knowledge I can have. (laughs) I will shove it down your throat, goddammit. I'm what? Sorry. (laughs) Um, Well, some of you, I hope, are familiar with Ah Weiwei. Um, Okay, Georgia O'Keeffe. Oh, Flower Vagina Lady. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure there's there's a shit ton more artists. I could mention their name. I don't think you'd recognize the name, but you would definitely recognize their work. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of really prominent people who have come through the Student Art League. So she, Elizabeth was there, and she was taking classes. And she was studying under a Mexican artist who was a member of this collective group, the Taller de Grafica Popular. Okay. And that's going to become really important in a little bit. One more time. Uh, I'm just going to refer to them either. What's it called again? The the taller, taller de grafica popular. What's spell that first word for me? It's T A L L E R. Taller. Yeah. Okay. So a while back, Milan and I went on this trip to see her family down in Colombia, <laughs> and I had been practicing Spanish. I'm shit with second languages. I've always been really bad, but I was practicing so hard, and finally my moment came. When we were at a cafeteria setting, and we were sitting with her family, and we'd been there a week already, and I was like, oh, no, I, I sat down with my food and realized I needed a fork. <laughs> and Milena's sitting there, and her brother's sitting there, and your aunt's sitting there, and you guys, like, championed, and you're like, gringa, you're ready. <laughs> Go up to the counter and ask for a fork. Because I, I knew fork. I didn't know how to say, may I please have a fork? And they're like, just say this. <laughs> just repeat this simple sentence. Go up, look, the nice lady's right there. Just go ask her. Go ask her. And I did. 
Emma's poor woman had no fucking idea what I was asking about when I was butchering Tenador. I was like, please, por favor, miming, shoving food in my face. So yeah, my Spanish is a little bad. I'm sorry. Oh, I, oh. <laughs> it was so good. We tried. It it wasn't. And bless that woman because she had no idea what I was saying. And I didn't know what she was saying. But it was a moment that really transcended language because I could tell she was like, oh, ma'am, I don't know what you need. Give me a sec. Jorge in the back speaks English. Let me go get him. <laughs> No, it's, I would have bet money that's exactly what she said. And at this point, I, one of you guys swooped in and got me a damn fork. Oh, no, but, that was yeah, me. That so would that's... be me. <laughs> so, for the sake of not butchering Spanish, I'm either going to refer to them as the collective, because they were an art collective, <laughs> the collective. or the TGP. The TGP. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I saved myself some grief. Um so she's in New York City. She's taking classes. She's working under this Mexican artist from the TGP. Um, and she's also helping to run a student program in Harlem based off of the WPA-funded Harlem Community Art Center. And while she's working at this school, she was inspired to create a series called The Negro Woman, which would turn into a collection of prints aiming to document not only well-known African-American women, but working-class women as well. And this concept landed her a Julius Rosenwald Foundation grant, which I didn't realize was essentially a foundation that was like the who's who of people in the 1930s and 40s. So the foundation was started by the part owners of Sears, and he was really concerned with social justice issues, and specifically poorly educated and underfunding for African Americans in the South. And so in total, from his foundation, there was $70 million Holy shit. that went. Yeah. It was when it was founded, there was just a shit ton of money and they allocated X amount every year for people and grants and research. And it ran out in the tail end of the 40s. But some really important people got these grants. So our boy W.E.B. Du Bois, we talked about last episode. Maya Angelou. Oh. Hey, someone you happened to do last episode, Mammy Phipps Clark and her husband, Kenneth, they got the grant. Oh, so they probably did know her. At least if, if she didn't go to Howard or they didn't meet in Howard, they definitely met in Queens. Like, Yeah, because, I mean, they're both for, well, for a little bit, uh, Elizabeth is working in Harlem. I mean, right. I don't know if that coincided no, they, yeah, with yeah, they would have. Sorry, they would have met in Harlem. The Clarks were there, too. Yeah. But so she received this grant. It was renewed for a second year. And one of the committee members told her, and by now she's 30, they're like, look, get out of New York City. The art scene is shit. It's racist. You're better off kind of getting out and, you know, just being being somewhere different for your for your work. And so she thought about it. And she's like, yeah, you know, I know these guys who are in this artist collective down in Mexico. Maybe I'll talk to them and see if, you know, can get down to Mexico. So she talked to one of these artists from the TGP. And it's so funny. He hooks her up with the contact info uh, of this woman who ran a boarding house down in Mexico City. She happened to be the mother-in-law of one of the three biggest public mural artists at the time in Mexico. Fancy. 
Like one of the three big hot shits, David Sakira's. And this guy's like, oh, yeah, here's his mother-in-law info. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I just thought it was pretty funny. Because it's all about family, community. All it ever is. It's all about who you know. Exactly. Especially before the days of the internet. Can't, you know, Yelp boarding houses down in Mexico City. There, you mean there or wasn't? an Airbnb or yeah, something. Yeah, there wasn't an Airbnb? Like... Yeah. So the next year, Elizabeth and her husband, they're they're both in Mexico, and they become guests of this this art of artist collective. Now, with her research into mural painting, she did while she was still at Howard, and having studied under a member at the Art Student League in New York City, mm-hmm. like she knew about them and what they did. And their thing was making primarily cheap, easy-to-reproduce prints for the common people of Mexico. And with their printmaking... They had an advantage over mural painting because mural painting just takes, like, so much longer to do. They were able to, like, quickly produce work that could address, like, a lot more issues and be a lot more responsive to current events. So, like the posters of the WPA, their style was aimed to be accessible to the common person, um, specifically to the poor and working class communities. The Art Collective was founded in 1937 after the founders split from a larger group. And that larger group in Mexico had ties to the Communist Party. In content, the the art collective engaged in social issues of the day in figurative prints. Members, they would meet weekly. The public would stop in. And if they had any problems, like students going on strike or labor disputes, like they would talk about it with the collective. And they would try to see if they could mediate and make things better. So it was really just beyond, like, making art and really being active in the community and actually doing something and having a social and political impact. And that was – that became really important to Elizabeth with her work. And it was was nice because she got to see that in practice – in Mexico while she was working with them. And she, I mean, she totally, like, fell in line with, them, with what they were doing, immersed herself, got really into printmaking, um, was developing her series, The Negro Woman, as they were crafting their own series of 85 pieces. And that was a series called Prince of the Mexican Revolution, documenting the specific experiences of Mexican people during 1910 to 1920. And Melanie Herzog, a art historian... PhD, and also MFA in ceramics. Uh, Stop that. Yeah, I'm mentioning it. it. Any chance I get. <laughs> um, she suggests that the Mexican Revolution prints gave Elizabeth, quote, a means to envision her epic celebration of the historical opposition, resistance, and survival of African-American women. Woo! And what Elizabeth does, she kind of becomes a conduit between Mexico and the United States and is able to say to artists, African-Americans back in the United States, like, hey, you guys should totally do it just like the TGP. Like, they're getting shit done, and there's no reason why we can't implement that same system in the United States, you know, to move them forward. It's almost like new and different people can bring new and different ideas from across any border. Right, Megan? I I feel like you're egging me on for something. I don't know. Just because, you know, Mexicans aren't drug dealers or trying to kill our babies oh yeah that they're not all rapists and drug dealers who are coming over here and stealing our jobs but simultaneously being lazy and taking advantage of public welfare exactly yeah that's what i was getting at yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) again some good old-fashioned american racism we're really fucking good at it (laughs) oh my god um anyway 
Yeah, so Elizabeth wasn't the only American hanging out in the late 1840s in Mexico. She was part of a first wave of Americans that traveled south, mostly African Americans, because, like we just mentioned, racism. That shit's fucked up. Yeah. Um, and there's another artist. I don't have his name in front of me, but, I mean, he summed it up. He was like, well, yeah, we went to Mexico. Mexico doesn't have any racist laws. It's more about class. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, but yeah, it's they could go and racism sit is... in a diner and yeah, and get served, and they weren't denied service because they were black. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, again, there's still social issues there. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that was that was one reason why there was an influx of people coming in. But also with the end of World War Two came the Cold War. You know, good old USA versus USSR. And the whole communism thing was not really going over so well in the U.S. No. Something about the color red. Yeah. Yeah. So on top of the intense racial segregation and racism, being tied to the Communist Party was also another reason why a good many of Americans went to Mexico. Uh, So artists and writers, intellectuals, filmmakers. Mexico was also a really great choice because at the time you didn't need a passport to travel there. Right. Yeah. And especially looking at those in Hollywood, Mexico was great because it was so close. So if you think about all the screenwriters and filmmakers that kind of fled. So with Elizabeth's husband being an official member of the Communist Party, like that might have been another reason why she was like, hey, let's go to Mexico Mexico when she got that grant renewed. It's warm. They serve us food there. You know, they're not going to lock you up. It's all good. Yeah. (laughs) So, originally, she planned just to be there a year. She did cut it short, went back to the States, and totally divorced Charles. Mm. Yeah. She was like, eh, it's been five years. It's not working. And again, she's like, she's not really young. Did, um, did, did she leave him for a sexy Mexican man? Maybe. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about it in that respect, but uh, yeah, no, she dropped him like a hot potato and picked up a hot tamale. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. It's just, we, you know, you can't resist our uh, our Latin charms. It's all good. Yeah, no, so, um, yeah, so she went back to, she went back to Mexico, uh, became a resident, Got remarried to a member of the art collective. <laughs> um, of TG, TGR? T- TGP. TGP. Hey, TGP. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, TGP. Um, yeah, so it's 1947. She's 32. She also has her first solo show in D.C. Ooh. Yeah, and it was at the Barnett. Aiden Gallery, which was the first privately owned black gallery in the United States and co-founded by her old Howard professor, the art historian, James Herring. Nice. Yeah. So again, you know. It's who you know. who you know. Now, at this time, you got the whole Cold War thing going on. Ugh, that A little bit of political tension in the United States. You know, as you and do. And so with this political tension, Elizabeth's considered you know, part of this pocket of American exiles down in Mexico. And so the need for these people, like, to flee the country, a lot of these creative types, highlights how the United States was fighting the Cold War, not only on a military and diplomatic front, but culturally as well. 
Hollywood's a great example of it because you just have a shit ton of directors and screenwriters and actors being subjected to the Red Scare and being blacklisted. Yeah. yeah. So it really it curtailed creative production in order to promote government-sanctioned productions, you know, kind of specific to Hollywood, but also broader and extended to the visual arts. So bear with me, but the rise of abstract expressionism is a government conspiracy. Megan, do we have time for this? No, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna prove it, and it's relevant to what I'm talking about. Okay, but we can't talk about that just yet because first we got to learn about what type of artwork Elizabeth makes. Also, how is she an alien? We'll get to that point. Okay, keep going. Hold your horses, woman. <laughs> um, so from our college college days up to her death. Again, like seven decades, Elizabeth did figurative work. She worked in marble, in bronze, in ceramics, terracotta, which is what I love to work in. It's a kind of red, earthy, um, orange-colored clay body. I literally once gifted Megan for her birthday a bucket of mud. Terracotta. Okay, yo, it's not mud. Okay. And I honestly thought after so many years of our friendship, you'd have a little okay. bit more respect you're right. for, you're right. for the ceramic arts. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yes. It wasn't mud, but it's clay. So she's doing these sculptures <laughs> and she's also really gotten into printmaking. So she's doing lino cuts and lithographs. And her prints, they're usually very bold and straightforward. Her sculptures are usually busts. The surface is always very smooth, very, you know, finely sanded, uh, very buttery and very refined. Although how she sculpts, it is a little bit softly abstracted. So for instance, the face will be smoothed out and simplified uh, in order to capture like the key characteristics of the person. And she pretty much exclusively sculpted women, focusing on black and later Mexican women's experiences. Now, when compared to Mita, our sculptor from last episode, Elizabeth doesn't necessarily have the same few significant works in her career. Mm -hmm. She was much more prolific, and unlike Mita, basically her entire art collection survived intact to this day. Nice. You know, because with Mita, like 16 years of her work just completely burnt to the ground. Right. She also had a very wide exposure to different artists during her life, going to all the different art centers, the Student Art League in New York, and then being in Mexico. She became influenced by like a wide variety of people and got to know quite a bit about different art movements from the time. With some of the people she studied under, you you can see their influence in her sense of form and surface and materials. So she's working stylistically in like the same vein as some of the most prominent sculptors of the 20th century. Her contribution being in the unique voice as an African-American, sculpting representational, figurative pieces with a political tone. And that goes back to her childhood, you know, listening to her grandma tell stories of slavery and, you know, her mission of representing women systematically dismissed by the mainstream. Now, this is where the conspiracy theory comes into play. Here we go. Right. So she's in Mexico, along with an assortment of other Americans, you know, escaping political persecution in the late 40s into the 50s. And the U.S. is fighting the USSR by any means. That includes promoting certain cultural ideologies aimed at furthering American nationalism, cue abstract expressionism. So from art school, like I was totally taught that post-World War II artists were so distraught over the atrocities of the war that that resulted in the decline in figurative work 
you know, they wanted to put distance between kind of the horrors that mankind was capable of. And that's where abstraction filled the need to, you know, put that distance between them and the, the human form. Right? Like, that sounds pretty solid. Yeah. Yeah. Like, when you look at all the atrocities and all the shit things that went through World War II, everyone was like, fuck that. Like, I don't want to sculpt people. We're assholes. We're shits. So that could totally be legit. But the U.S. government also promoted the shit out of abstract expressionism. So the characteristics of Elizabeth's art, along with a lot of other prominent you know, socially, politically minded artists of the time, being representational, being figurative, being political, is what made their art dangerous. And that's what got their art essentially blacklisted. Oh, no. From galleries. Yes. And, oh, no. Yeah, from mainstream American art. Right. You know, the art world. So people working in those parameters, they found themselves shut out of formal representation in the art world. So no gallery representation, no solo shows, no funding, because the very nature of their work ran counter to the ideology that the U.S. was trying to promote internationally to counter the USSR. They wanted to advertise the U.S. as this great democratic country that was obviously superior to those repressive commie bastards. And that was done by showcasing the achievements of America. And art that couldn't possibly be critical of sexism, of racism, of income inequality was a great way to go. And what better way to do that than abstract expressionism? Gotcha. Yeah. See? Telling you, abstract expressionism, government conspiracy against the commies. It sounds crazy, but it's legit. So as a result, artists like Elizabeth, they were dismissed in the U.S. market. And, I mean, not only was she a woman in emancipation, but she was black, and she was making work that totally ran counter to the popular style. So, you know, just a few headwinds to deal with. But thankfully, that did not hinder her art making at all. Back in Mexico, she's settled in, working with the art collective, gets remarried, meets one of the big three top Mexican muralists uh, and husband, Frida Kahlo. The one with the, with the mural? Or the mother-in-law? She doesn't meet him. Instead, she meets Diego Rivera. Oh. Yeah. And I, as I've covered, I'm shit with Spanish. So I've asked Milena to say his full name because I had no idea. <laughs> it was so long. And now I'm like on the... Hold on. I'm now on the spot. Let me scroll to where you sent the name. She sent this to me last night while I was like making a date dinner and like three tequilas in and i mean ultimately this is completely unrelated to what i'm talking about but the name is ridiculous (laughs) i just want other people to know how ridiculous it is she said she's hold on any chance you could say this name for me tomorrow it's artist diego rivera's full name and there is no way in hell i can pronounce that uh, and I'm like, done. I can't. <laughs> I can't say fork. I can't say this name. <laughs> okay. Why is there a Maria in this? It, Spanish naming customs, you include both sides of the family. I was looking into a little bit. Oh. <laughs> I should know that, but Jesus. All right. So we have Diego Maria Concepcion, Juan uh, Nepom. Moseno Estanislao de la Rivera y Barrientos Acosta y Rodriguez. That is Ugh, way too many names. I love you. That is, I might have fucked that up a little bit, but it, it doesn't flow off the tongue, off of my tongue at least. Uh, but yeah, 
That is a really long name. And I thought my mom's name was long. I'm really suddenly really thankful that they only gave me two names. Yeah, I I had no idea just how lengthy they... I mean, I knew they could be a little long, but no idea. Um, So, not relevant that everyone needs to know just how ridiculous his last name was, but now you guys know. Because sharing is caring. Sharing is caring. But not syphilis. We should not share syphilis. (laughs) And you should get your vaccinations, as we learned from WPA-approved government posters. Um, She's hanging out with all these cool cats down in Mexico, all these big hotshot artists. She's remarried. She becomes not only professor at the National School of Painting, Sculpture, and Printmaking in Mexico City, but their first woman head of sculpture, too. Nice. And that would have never happened in the United States. I mean, remember, like, we're still in the 1950s at this point. So she was very politically active in her new home country. At this point, there's a shift in the Mexican government. It's more conservative and in line with the U.S., the U.S. Embassy was telling her to cool it. She was investigated by the House on American Activities Committee, mm. which was the reason why a lot of Americans relocated to Mexico to begin with, because they were completely trying to avoid that. And that's what culminated in her being declared a undesirable alien by the government in 1962 at the age of 47. Those bastards. Yeah, but I don't think she really gave a fuck. <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I'm okay, not no, American? I'm... Sure. <laughs> yeah, like, way to be like, give me shit for first I'm a woman, and then you're black, and oh, now I'm not American enough. Oh, no. Because <laughs> I've never dealt with any hardships before in my life. <laughs> never dealt with any systematic oppression of who I am. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, again. I don't think she really gave a fuck. No, no, um, probably not. Now, prior to her new alien status, she gave the keynote speech at a meeting of the National Conference of Negro Artists at Howard University, encouraging them to think beyond their place in the United States to their contributions on a global scale. It, she acknowledged the limitations on Black artists in America at that time. I, I mean, she had experienced it herself. But she knew, having worked abroad, that there was a lot more opportunities open to them if they just looked beyond the U.S. to what they would be able to do internationally. Right, because Mita had to go to Uh, France, and she had to go to Mexico. Yeah, Yeah. and during this time, there was a handful of people that did deflect over to France and to Europe. But again, you needed a passport to do that, and so that's why Mexico became a good option for people who were already politically in hot water and who might not have passports approved right so they could just they could just drive down there and they'd be fine very cool and having worked with the art collective in mexico she was able to share with them you know their techniques and their organization structure you know and how people could apply it back in the united states to their advantage you know like working around the traditional gallery scene Showing work abroad, creating art for the public, making art that was easy to produce and easy to be seen, and that directly tackled and was uncompromising about black issues and identities in their art. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 1971, when she was 56, that she had another show in the United States, this time a solo person exhibition at the Studio Museum in Harlem. And to go to her own solo show, she needed a special visa from the United States. Oh, fuck that. 
Well, yeah, again, remember, she's an undesirable alien. No, just what the fuck? Now, we're in the early 70s, and a U.S. government's kind of chilled out a little bit over her. And she gets a visa, and she's able to go. And after going back to the States for that show, things really pick up with her work back in the States. She gets uh, quite a handful of really prominent commissions, um, in addition to more shows in the States. She retires in 1975 from the National School. She's 60. Um, And for those commissions, she does a bronze statue of Louis Armstrong for the New Orleans Bicentennial Celebration, a bronze relief for her alma mater, a monument to Ralph Ellison in New York City. And her reputation and her acknowledgments really, really growing back in her initial like home country. After retiring, she moves outside of Mexico City and she keeps making art. In the 60s and 70s, her work was included in major surveys like the two centuries of Black American art at the Los Angeles County Museum. In 1976, she's 61. At the age of 83 in 1998, the Newburgh Museum of Art held a 50-year retrospective of her sculptures. And today her work is held in the collections of the Modern Museum of Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art in Mexico City, the National Museum of Prague, and on top of that, like a crap ton of private collections too. After a year after her husband passed away in 2003, the International Sculpture Center gave her like a Lifetime Achievement Award. Nice. And up until her death in 2012, at the age of 96, she kept working. Like, really prolific. 96? Um, yeah, 96, and hustling the fuck out of her art making. Jesus. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's art goals right there. Now, with the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s came the black arts movement. And that was a very direct, unapologetic, creative assertion of what it's what it's like to be black in America. Right. Um, and it was like a whole new generation of young African-American artists. And Elizabeth, with her social and political work, she contributed to that rise of black identity art in the United States. She said to her former student and biographer, Samila Lewis, quote, I've always wanted my art to serve my people, to reflect us, to relate to us, to stimulate us, to make us aware of our potential. And that's what she was all about with her art. I mean, at times you might look at her work and be like, oh, it's fairly conventional. But when you learn about who she was and how she made it and under what circumstances and how she had to move forward, that's what makes it, for me, really potent. Right. Wow. Yeah. So no big deal. It's just Elizabeth Cadlett. It's insane. I don't think I would yeah. be able to know where I was at 96. I wouldn't be in my right mind, let alone my right mind enough to, like, hustle shit. Yo, I, that's the only reason why I'm drinking some lame-ass kale smoothies now, because I've got a lot of art that I intend to make, and I better be 96 years old. And just... Still still going well. Still in the studio making. Very cool. Yeah, so I'm drinking that shit now. <laughs> um, now, one little thing that I do want to note about all my research for Elizabeth was with all the talk of... The type of art she made, how she fits into, like, modernism, her role as kind of a conduit between Mexico and America, and, you know, kind of dual identities as an African-American, but then being immersed in Mexico. Um, There's really, there's no mention of her raising a family. 
that's a yeah i wasn't sure if she like i mean that's fine that was that's not her thing that's not her thing that's amazing yeah and i mean that's kind of typical when you read about like male artists Mm -hmm. they don't talk about like i mean yeah they'll mention they get married and you know it's relevant for her because her husband was another artist Mm -hmm. um but they they had three sons together um you know, their youngest helped her in the studio make art, and he's out in Germany now. Uh, their their middle son, Juan, is a professor emeritus and filmmaker in Mexico, and he did a documentary on his parents about both artists. And their their oldest, Francisco, is a jazz drummer in New York City. Cool. Yeah, so overall, like, a very vibrant, creative family. family. Yeah. Uh, but I just found it really interesting that they didn't really mention that at all. And it was it was more focused on her and her work. You know, yeah, her role as an artist, as a professor, as a social and political rights activist, right. um, which is in really big contrast to who we talked about last week or last episode with Mita. And she hit a point where suddenly it was, you're not an artist anymore. You're a wife and you're a mother. And then she had to make a bat cave. Enjoy these gender roles. <laughs> And build that studio in secret. <laughs> like, oh, 16 years of your art burnt down. Here, let's have three babies. That's the least I could do for you. Jesus. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, so that's Elizabeth Catlett. Good for her. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I So that's the story of my undesirable alien. Um, so who's this, this first lady to get a PhD in chemistry? You got to tell me about. So, yeah, her name was Marie Maynard Daly, and she, again, was the first African-American woman to receive a Ph.D. in chemistry in the United States. Uh, She was born in Queens, New York, April 16th, 1921. So her family put, like, a crazy emphasis on education. Her dad moved from the West Indies, got into Cornell University to study chemistry, but he didn't have enough money. Nice. Yeah. So he ended up becoming, like, a postal clerk. And her mother would read books to her from an early age, like, growing up, like, from the beginning, just Mm -hmm. spend hours reading to her. And it was specifically books surrounding themselves around, like, science. Um, So she's avid reader, loves science, was hearing stories about how, you know, her dad could have gone to college, that sort of thing. So she had all this in mind. And when she graduated Hunter College High School, which was an all-girls institute in, like, New York City, Mm-hmm. She attended Queens College so she could live at home and save money. And she graduated from that particular university in 1942, magna cum laude, with a bachelor's degree in chemistry. So she didn't want to stop. She didn't have money to go to grad school. So she worked as a lab assistant at Queens College, so the, the one she just graduated. And then she also earned a fellowship. And these two things helped her fund her graduate degree from New York University. So she finished her master's in 1944. The thing that bothers me the most is I cannot find what she got her master's degree in. Everything that I looked into, it didn't tell me what it was, but they told me that it was quick. So she finished her master's degree in a year. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. It was It was pretty cool. It was awesome. I just wish I knew what it was. Um, but she was coming into prime during World War II, and we all know that war. We just talked about it. And I didn't quite know about the impact it had on women in the workplace. I mean, I knew that there was an impact, but I didn't know, 
like how widespread it was, like what a national movement it was. So men had to leave their mm-hmm. jobs and go to war. They left like these open spots in like factories and there weren't enough men to really fill them. So when women worked outside of the home, they worked in traditionally female careers. So teachers, nurses, that sort of thing. But with the men gone, the government needed someone to continue to work domestically in the United States. So they launched campaigns. Mm-hmm. And they created Rosie the Riveter. Well, she was a woman strong enough and smart enough to to be able to work in what was considered a man's job. But she's still embracing her femininity while she's doing it. So she always looked good every time she was depicted, even when she had like a wrench in her hand. There was always like makeup going on. She was always she was wearing heels, that sort of thing. Um, and it was there to entice women to fill those positions that left that men left behind. How you can still be a woman, but you can do this for your country. Right. So mm-hmm. the big, the super important, the the poster we all think about when we think of Rosie the Riveter, where she's like showing her guns and it's like, we can do it, that sort of thing. There's a whole slew of that campaign. Five million women entered the workforce between 1940 and 1945. In response to the dual duties of being a mother and a worker, Eleanor Roosevelt pushed her husband to approve the first U.S. government child care facilities under the Community Facilities Act of 1942. She also tried to get industry leaders to build model child care facilities for their workers. So this is where we're starting to see slight accommodations for women in the workplace. Very basic stuff. Ah, okay. Yeah. But it was it was a start to something. Men were told not to worry, though. The women were expected to go back to their home duties and children once the war was over. So when it did end, mm-hmm. women were laid off in hordes. They just they were just like sent home, uh, but eventually started to bounce back in the 1950s. So like 32 percent of women were back in the workforce by then. But there was a point where they were like, no, she's just going to go back. She's we're just using her. She'll be okay. She'll go back to being a mom sooner or later, like that sort of thing. So most of these women worked as like riveters, welders, worked in the armed forces. But this attitude was in every industry, including the science one. So in the next episode, we'll talk about this in the coming week, but NASA would start to hire women to do calculations for studies and test flights. Um, And they were called human computers. So they would kind of take over what was considered menial calculations for, like, men to do. So they, they started hiring around that time women. Um, so these are labs around the country would expand out to, to acquire women because these men were sent out to war. They didn't just need hands. They needed minds as well. Yeah. Right. Daily, like, snuck into a lab where she could, like, be a lab assistant and, uh, you know, be a part of a fellowship and really work her way towards, you know, learning more and getting more of those contacts. So 1947 rolls around. Daly's not stopping. After her master's program, she immediately rolls at Columbia University as a doctoral student. She gets in and her research focuses on how the body's chemicals help digest food. She studies under a chemist and nutritionist who expanded opportunities for women in the field of chemistry. Her name was Dr. Mary Caldwell. Um, so she she had that influence as well. She was under her. So Daly's thesis studied how compounds in the human body affected digestion. So the title of her dissertation was A Study of the Products Formed by the Action of Pancreatic Amylase on Cornstarch. Oh, goodness, that sounds so riveting. It's, do you know anything about it? About amylase? Uh, No. Okay. 
So, <laughs> um, it's, it's just such a, it's such a complicated, long process, but I'm going to try and compact it. So I, I believe in you. <laughs> our body runs on energy, specifically a molecule called ATP. Um, and it's short for adenosine triphosphate. Uh, it's the most precious form of currency, biologically speaking. Everything runs on it. Um, so our body uses glycolysis, which is a very long, very complicated, very hard to memorize metabolic pathway. I had to memorize it. It was very tedious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but it converts glucose into ATP. So you get that glucose from sugars and starches. Uh, but the molecules in the sources can be really big and sometimes too big for glycolysis to convert into ATP. Uh, so that's where amylase comes in. It's, a, it's an enzyme or like a protein in the body. And the only thing mm -hmm. it does is break down starches and glycogens to, to like a form of glucose that can be converted into ATP. So what Daly was looking at specifically okay. was the pancreatic amylase, the pancreatic protein called alpha amylase and its effect on starches. And that is what earned her a PhD in chemistry and what made her the first woman, African-American woman in the United States to earn a PhD in chemistry. Nice. Yeah. Her work is really, it can really make your head hurt, but it's super. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure. <laughs> like, it's super interesting to me. So I was going through it and my brain was killing me, but I was like. Like, because later on, we'll, we'll be talking about another thing that she looks into that I never got into, that I never got to that point, because that's, like, super advanced stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was just like, this is so interesting. And it was just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> um, so she, 1948, after she gets her PhD, she gets a grant from the American Cancer Society. And it's a seven-year research program at the Rockefeller Institute of Medicine, uh, she examined how proteins are constructed in the body. So she focused on taking the nucleus, right, of a eukaryotic cell mm -hmm. and dissecting it in order to study it without fucking it. So specifically, she studied histones and proteins in them, as well as the structure of DNA and its bases. So histones are also proteins, but they're in the nucleus of the cell and they're important in gene expression. Um, so her work there was separating the components of the nuclei and determining the different amino acids or, like, the building blocks that made up these histones. Um, okay. All right. And all proteins are made of amino acids. Uh, so the DNA study that she looked in specifically was, do you remember in biology class, like, way back when, when you learned about, like, the pyridines and the pyramines, sorry, purines and pyrimidines, like, the four basic building blocks of DNA? I'm going to be honest. No. No? Okay. I don't remember that. Um, so DNA. Yeah, that, that didn't stick. That's fair. It, you, you know what DNA looks like, right? Yeah. Yeah. The little swirly bits. <laughs> Double helix. Uh, yeah. I mean, you just take like a piece of bacon and twist it and voila, <laughs> DNA. <laughs> not, I mean, I'm mostly vegetarian, so I'm not going to eat that shit, but like, there you go. Yeah. It, it, it's more like a ladder and it's twisted. Yeah. You got to you gotta punch out parts of the bacon strip. <laughs> And then you get it and you twist that little sucker. It's like a twisted ladder. And those ladders, the rungs on the ladder, they're made up of... Yeah, no, I I remember that, yeah. Yeah, you remember right. that? So, like, you, you know that the rungs, they're made up of a pair of four different, like, building blocks. 
and they're like like one can that, only one I, can only pair with the other that sort of thing uh no that i, I don't think i remember yeah. so, the I mean, mechanics of it there are just like four four of them there it's adenine guanine cytosine and thymine um, okay that dictates everything in how we look how we act like and everything is made up of those four things so her study mm-hmm. was like are we missing more components is it just the four that we already know? Are there more that we don't know about? So it's this really extensive one um, where they checked out nucleic acids that were prepared from, like, a calf thymus, a calf kidney, sheep spleen, horse spleen, chicken erythrocyte, turtle erythrocyte, trout sperm, shad testes. What is a shad? I don't even know. Sea urchin sperm. <laughs> Wheat germ and pneumococcus type 3. Pneumococcus is just a bacteria. All all eukaryotic kinds of cells that they can pull from and check the DNA that way. So they, like, separated the DNA using hydrolysis. So, like, water. Basically, water broke it down chemically. Um, okay. They just went through all this trouble with all these different, like, samples. And they are like, nope, it's just the four. <laughs> we triple checked we, it's we're good now it's just fine yeah <laughs> and then there was another thing that she looked at I, I mean no it's it was it's super important to know that you didn't miss anything because if you didn't miss something then your entire understanding of the human body and how it's built is going to be thrown off yeah no it's it's important even a negative is it's, is valuable information exactly and then she, like, moved on after that. She looked at the role of cytoplasmic ribonucleoproteins in protein synthesis. And this study was later cited by Watson. So Watson and Crick, they they got the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA, essentially. Discovering, looking at it, like, figuring out what what makes it, how it's made. Um, but he, ah, okay. in his Nobel lecture, when he was going, hey, thanks for the prize, he cited her work as helping with that. Her work yeah. with the cytoplasmic ribonucleoprotein. So, what's a ribonucleoprotein? <laughs> I just imagine you had to say that quite a lot to get it down because I'd be tripping all up on I, it. You do it enough. You do enough science enough. And it just kind of makes sense. But when I first started saying these names, like, it was very, like, what? Why? Why is that so long? Why are there so many vowels in this? Uh, <laughs> it Really what it is is it's a complex form, like, formed between RNA and RNA-binding proteins. Uh, and it helps, well, some help with the pre-mRNA splicing. And that's just okay. a step in protein synthesis. So... In order to get a specific protein, there's like a special code called a codon. And it's a sequence of three nucleotides. So three of those rungs on the ladder found in DNA. Yeah. Okay. So without getting too much into it, you can't get proteins without DNA. And you can't get DNA without the messenger RNA or the mRNA splicing, transcripting, and translating into another DNA. And you can't get that splicing without some key ingredient, which includes the ribonucleoprotein. Like, it's part of that process. Okay. Does that make sense? So. Not entirely. So you're straightening up. Okay, so if you were, like, building a sandwich, which part would be which? Okay. 
So you're you're straightening out the ladder, right? Yeah. You're pulling away the sides of the ladder away from each other. Yeah. And the rungs, which are made of two different kinds of wood, they break where those two woods meet. They don't break. Are we talking like, like dead center? Yeah. They, or like they unattached. Okay. Okay. So when that happens, the messenger RNA, like nuclear proteins, that a whole idea of like splicing the DNA into two. There, there are little proteins that go around, and they kind of they they stick to one of the one side of the ladder. So they these little these little bits they'll read the adenine or the guanine or the cytosine, one of those four things, and it'll go once it's done reading that specific section, it'll go out of the nucleus and like basically tell how this how this particular side is made up. And so what you're doing is you're getting a plan of a DNA. So you can make a copy of the DNA. So you can have two copies. Okay. So you have plans, leaves the cell, talks to another protein, and they help build it up. Mm -hmm. So they have two now. So that's all what splicing, transcripting, and translating is. You're splicing apart the DNA. You're transcripting everything down. You're writing everything down. And then you're translating it over. Okay. And you do that using ribonucleoproteins. Okay. And that way... When the cell goes through mitosis and, like, separates itself, you know, the daughter cells, how they they keep forming and they grow that way. Do you remember that? How Mm -hmm. they, like, split in half and they become two cells? Yeah. Um, That way you have two sets of DNA where the original is in one, like, the original set is in one cell and then the second set is in the second cell. So you're making an exact copy of the cell that was that once existed so now there are two of that cell yes yes yeah yeah so that's that's what that does okay is that better so my school was wonderful i learned lots of things at university of the arts um (laughs) which for ceramics in case you didn't know uh learn how to establish my own studio after graduation and you know function as a independent studio artist with crippling student loans. Um, I did not, however, need to take a science class at all in my f- four years of undergraduate study. <laughs> God bless an art school. <laughs> I had to take one math requirement. Bit of a doozy. Forgot a lot of it, but I got through it. Got through it. Um, <laughs> science, not so much. So God bless you for breaking that down for me, and I appreciate it, and I like to think other people appreciate it, but... Don't judge me if I'm just like, oh, okay, oh, that's all right, that's cool. Yeah, oh, we're a PhD. That's in the, yeah, that, that stuff, that, that RBG, TGP. Uh, right. That yeah, right. our collective, yeah. It's the TGP, yeah, stick it together. <laughs> it just, ah, uh, it, I know, it, like, it all seems very menial and trivial. And why the hell would you spend that much time studying a specific protein? But at the end of the day, like, that specific protein is what makes life possible. So it's super no, complicated. That's, that's but fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I, and the broad strokes of it, like, I, that, I, that I can get. It's just when you bring it down into the literal DNA structure of it, you're, you're over my little head. I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah. I appreciate it, though. I do. I tried. I tried to, like, not, like, it's a lot. It's a lot. It can get very confusing. I, I'm. It's a PhD studies worth of stuff. Yeah. It's a yeah. 
I don't even know where I was. I wrote down the abstract. Ribonuclear protein of the microsome faction with sediments at 40,000 RPM as a pellet. And after that, I was like, nope, that's, that's very intense. That is a PhD study, if I've ever yeah. seen one. In the pancreas, a distinction can be made between protein synthesized for secretion and the nuclear protein of the pellet, not found in the secretion, which, however, takes part in the synthetic process, as shown by the fact that the N15 uptake by protein of the pellet is increased when the synthesis of digestive enzymes is stimulated by secretion. And, madam, I have no idea what I just read. No, I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch. I'm going to do garlic spinach, like <laughs> sandwich. What my body will be secreting later <laughs> from the garlic spinach. Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. So. so I mean, obviously, a very intelligent woman who got in the down and dirty of you know DNA. Yeah, she's that was. These are all. These were all done in her seven year research program at the Rockefeller Institute of Medicine. So. That's uh, so how old was she when she was she was doing all that during that seven year span? She was well it started in nineteen forty eight. She was born in nineteen twenty one. That's what I wondered if she was in her late twenties, early thirties, mm-hmm. and you know just like casually doing this. Yep. <laughs> and I like that was a, by the by the end of it, she was if we made her our age, like in her early thirties. It's insane. And, like, to have work that she did in her late 20s be considered as a contribution to a Nobel Prize winning yeah, like, work. Like, what? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> um, so, anyway, after this, she returned to Columbia to work with Dr. Quentin B. Deming on the causes of heart attacks. So I looked up who Quentin Deming was, and I got zero information. He is very private. He's still, I think he's still, no, he died because I have his obituary. Um, <laughs> he, he died recently. January 21st of this year. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. So, and I know it's this one because, like, in it, it was, in 1942, he graduated from Dartmouth Medical School, after which he completed his mm-hmm. medical training at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. Um, He did, like, a fellowship. Yeah, so it has to be him. Yeah. Yeah, it, I didn't get a lot of, I just got an obituary, and that was it. Um, So, that's cool, I guess. But he and Daly were studying heart attacks there. It was some of the earliest work relating diet to heart health. So the impact of cholesterol, sugar, and other nutrients. Um, that hypertension was a precursor to arthrosclerosis. So mm-hmm. hypertension is high blood pressure. Arthrosclerosis is the buildup of fats, cholesterol, and other substances in and on the artery walls. Which then leads to the heart attack because the heart is pumping its blood or trying to pump its blood as well as it should, but it can't because there's shit in the way. So it has to pump harder and faster to get the blood where it needs to go to keep the body moving. And sometimes that atherosclerosis is so built up 
that it can't get through those walls and you can't get enough blood out to like your other organs mm-hmm. um or you can't get it back depending on where like what vein is building up you know what i mean um yeah so yeah it's just it's working harder and faster and sometimes so hard and so fast and it's still not getting blood to where it needs to go and that is a heart attack so that research was preliminary to what a heart attack was what caused it why a diet is so important why what you eat is so important on top of her major research efforts, Daly also taught biochemistry at Howard and Columbia Universities. She put in efforts to get more African Americans enrolled in medical schools and science graduate programs. So she put, she was like in administration while she was teaching, going, no, we should probably look into this person. Like she's got great scores or she has like a great thesis that she wants to do. Like she's amazing. She's, brilliant. you know, you know what I mean? Like she was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, really advocating for those, exactly. that advancement. And then on top of her, like, seven-year research on freaking ribonucleoproteins and her research on heart attacks and heart health. Oh, and also on top of, you know, her advocating for minorities and African-Americans to be equally represented or more more representation for them. She also apparently had time to join two sororities. Sigma Psi and Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, okay. Become a member of the New York Academy of Science. Become a fellow nice. at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And in 1988, mm-hmm. she also started a scholarship for minority students who wanted to study science at Queens College in honor of her father. Oh, that's sweet. So she, was she like really primarily focused on examining how diet influence us on like a molecular level yeah after that heart attack study oh yeah 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 so she was always super into like the way that the body like broke things down and how it worked like molecularly so not only was she like huge on like you should you know you shouldn't eat these things you should eat these things you should watch your like your blood pressure that sort of thing she was looking into exactly how the cholesterol and the sugars and the fats were broken down in the body and where they went and how long it took for them to get there and what bound mm-hmm. the the cholesterol molecules and the sugar mole- molecules so closely together, what bound them to the artery walls and just like really just dug deep in there. So it was all biochemistry and like the little intricacies that come with our body and how it works. And it's all very interesting and I love it. <laughs> it's so cool. Like I was geeking out so hard. <laughs> I don't know why, but it was it was a lot of fun. Um Yeah, so that was this super crazy smart lady. And who I imagine she would not advocate you eating bacon strands of DNA. No, no, she would be one hundred percent against that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think your cholesterol. You're like, no, too too fatty. Oh god, now I want a BLT. With pickles? And a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is that it? Did we do the thing? I mean, I've yeah, I've I've shared everything I got for Elizabeth Catlett. And I 
I've given you a little insight on how our body works and which lady made it her entire life's goal to know everything about it. So thank you for listening to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. We really appreciate you guys uh, sticking with us like a bacon fat on a DNA strand. <laughs> Clogging your arteries. So, Milena, if people are interested in seeing show notes to see some of the artwork that we talked about and to see a picture of the scientists you went over, uh, where can they find out more information about us? So you can find us at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can also email us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We're on Instagram and Facebook as My Favorite Feminists. Uh, and if you want to hear us, we are on Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. So go ahead and hit that like and subscribe button. And in the iTunes review section, let us know if you could splice human DNA with anything. What would it be? What would it be, Megan? I don't know. I'm just thinking about tomatoes and tamales from earlier. But that would just be a weird human food hybrid. That would be really weird. That would be like a Pokemon. Yeah. Like one of those late gen Pokemons. Do they do that with food? I don't know if they. I I just caught a cactus yesterday, a fucking cactus. Like we were some sort of Digimon trash. Well, I mean, at a certain point, it's got to be exhaustive trying to come up with new ones. <laughs> just stick to the good ones. You only need you only really need Gen one and two. Just throwing that out there. Oh, I'm a purist. Just the first. Just the first. <laughs> yeah. Showing my age a little bit. <laughs> I think I think they already know. Alright, guys. Thanks for listening. Alright, until next time. Have a good one. Bye. Come on, 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 come on,